Mishka Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him. How you doing? I'm good. The um, chaotic morning already. The but um, how it goes. The but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I feel like I'm a little bit, uh, I felt like I really needed to process it. Um, when it happened, it feels, it doesn't feel distant, but thankfully it feels less raw. And, you know, I didn't, unlike you, I did not know the guy. Um, I don't know if that's, I guess that's the idea is I think we're talking about Mark, Mark Lanigan, right? Uh, I mean, that's our way in. I think, you know, we, uh, we have much to talk about. Um, let me, uh, let me give you a little bit of an introduction here to people listening, uh, you know, due to, uh, COVID supply chain issues, we were, are not be able, not able to, uh, to get any edits off the truck. So I just do sort of a cold introduction at the beginning, um, which is always kind of funny. Uh, Alec Bemis is an old friend from Brooklyn from approximately a million years ago, uh, co-founder of Brassland record label. Um, and he's, uh, discovered, uh, facilitated, brought to light a lot of great bands, uh, from the national to, uh, Bartiz Cox and also has Bartiz done strange, AKA Bartiz, the... Bartiz Cox, AKA Bartiz strange, just in case people are Googling. Okay. The, um, and Alec has also accomplished the bizarre feat uh, uh, a music writer's wet dream of landing a piece in the New Yorker and then promptly quitting music journalism. <laughs> Is that accurate or close? Yeah, it was complicated. The editor that brought me in left soon after I published the thing in there. So I did, I did have like one meeting with an editor there afterwards, but, um, so that was part of it, that it was the ease of doing it again it was not going to necessarily be easy. It was going to be repitching myself, but also I, in writing that piece, it was a review of a Beck record. By the end of the New Yorker editorial process, I was like, this is not actually my writing. This is like writing for the New Yorker. And I don't have a voice like you have a voice and a, and a per POV. I'm more of a like roving eyeball than a like, this is my world person. But I was like, wow, this is not why I got into writing. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And also the record label more music industry-ish things started taking off and that seemed like an easier path. And even for someone that's, I think, had success as a writer, I think you'd probably agree writing is almost never an easy path. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the bigger the venue, the less rewarding it is because the less um, agency and identity you have in your own writing. I mean, I was, I remember doing um, sort of uh, nickel, you know, music, live music reviews for New York Magazine uh, in whatever, 2008 and turning them in and then see, seeing them printed the next day and being like, you know, this is not me and a negative review turned positive or a positive review turned negative or, you know, the, um, just, yeah. I mean, you know, that, you know, I imagine it's like with Alzheimer's or something like that, where you don't recognize yourself. Yeah. And it's um, 
it's distressing when you um, when you put so much work into you know into what you're creating. Um, you know, then to sort of like look in the mirror and not see yourself there. I, I remember getting out of college and thinking, what do I want to do with my life? And like, where do I want to go? And thinking like, you know, it'd be awesome if something I did got turned into a movie, but I would never want any part of that process really, because it just feels collaborative to a fault. And I think I got a whiff of that in journalism that like, I'm like, wow, even this low stakes nickel review in the, you know, New York magazine. And I got, you know, I got to the point where I was getting a dollar a word for, I wrote some things for the New York times. And I did a bunch of that actually after the New Yorker thing happened, but um, yeah. Also, you know, I think frankly, the environment, the even poor environment that we both came into is poorer now than everyone writes. So I, you know, I saw a little bit of that on the horizon. I don't know if I'm definitely done writing forever, I just think as a living, yeah, crazy. Yeah, the, I mean, it's funny. It's like the, I always have this conversation with people where they're like, um, oh, you know, our drummer is such a psychopath. And I'm like, yeah, well, look, look what they chose for their instrument. It's like, what's the heaviest, most, um, what's the most asocial uh, instrument that I can play the like the <laughs> most a musical thing of just you know where it's sort of like uh, oral violence and then you're complaining that they're unstable. I mean, yeah, of course they are. You know, and and similarly with writers, you know, where we don't enjoy this, you know, the collaborative editorial process. It's like, yeah, no, we just want to sit in a fucking bubble with the outside world shut off. Um, thinking about our feelings and writing about our feelings and then rereading them and, you know, to not, uh, to not have another person involved in the process, you know? So I, I, I like think a good editor, I liked a good editor. I think writing in journalism, I even found them occasionally, but, um, yeah, I think I could see where things were going and like editing is not where journalism is going. It's more like cutting things down and blurbing and, building your platform. I mean, what you've done actually awesomely kind of, I feel like you have an audience, right? Like, I, I don't know if they'll follow you anywhere, but like you have one, you're talking to people. Yeah, the, I, I do, I, you know, I, I griped about this with a friend on another podcast, you know, is, which is that now, now that I do have an audience, I feel like the, most of what I do is just day-to-day -day shit of like, you know, these tiny little uh, micro updates, pictures of my cat, um, selling, t you know, selling t-shirts, mailing t-shirts, stuff like that. And I, I feel like, I feel horribly guilty because for the, um, the amount of art that I'm actually producing right now versus the amount of attention that I'm getting for it. I feel like the ratio is totally skewed because, you know, in my head, I'm still in New York, 22 years old, living on hot dogs, getting like fucking rickets from malnutrition and begging, you know, I, I, I remember like to sell three CDs mail order during the year, I, you know, I would be like, holy shit, like a person is listening you know, and I would just be over the moon. And, um, and now I'm not. <laughs> and, you know, in it, it was, it was absolutely hell at that time. And also because it's more abstract now, because it's more like people following you than people getting the artifact necessarily like, yeah, has it changed in that way? Yeah, the I mean, also just like, 
data admin and stuff like that. And, you know, the, when uh, baby Dayliner hit some Rubicon recently of like a million streams, I think. And uh, my, and, Ethan's my friend. I love him. I'm a fan of the music. You know, the we go way back. And my first thought was, and that's how I met you. I met you through uh, through Baby Dayliner. Well, yeah. maybe there were a couple. Maybe I met Baby Dayliner through you. It's actually unclear. To All me. right, the, the manager. I, yeah, I think I think I met the National first, and then that's yeah. how I met you, and then that yeah. and that's how I um the that's how you met. Uh, Baby yeah, what about the million streams? Like, oh yeah. yeah What's your thought on that? Well, like, I saw the I saw the million streams. Ethan's my friend. I love the music. I you know I did what I could to sort of like you know help him on his way with his career. And my first thought was, "Fuck you! How many streams do I have?" Yeah. And then I right like not to not to go back and listen to the volume of music that he's put out in the last ten years, much of which I haven't heard just because I've been unplugged. But like, um, jealousy and a specific type of Excel spreadsheet uh you know type jealousy and numerical uh, competition is part of our lives i mean it's and, and i yeah. hate myself for that it's it's such bullshit that's not how that's not how we're supposed to make art or enjoy art but that's immediately where my brain went which is you know to the pettiest um small dick energy you know just like uh, but my streams you know it's like it's so dumb I mean, yeah, all I can point to is the fact that I keep doing it, you know, and I have had multiple things that have streamed millions of times, like that I put out, I've been part of successful things. But if, if I actually, the thing about being like the institution, um, rather than the artist is not everything's going to go well or well in that way. And you have to fight sort of smaller battles. I think, I think that's one of the reasons I stopped, or I pulled myself back from writing, I didn't I could see that my ego was going to be on the line with things constantly. And that didn't feel healthy for me. Do, do you have other, I actually have a question yeah. because I follow your social feeds, you know, like we, anyone follows anyone, like, you know, if it's, if your dog poops and a lot of people click on it, I'm more likely to see it than if it's like, I published a book today and people are like, oh, I already knew that. I'm not going to click like on that. So it's, it's algorithmically derived, but do you also have like a, a sideline or just like a sanity provider of like guitars and cars basically is that like a major part of your life or is that just like fun to share because i get the sense that you're like flipping these things like constantly yeah i i i met um you know i met some new people at dinner the other night and they were like um oh you know what do you do and i was like i'm an artist and they were like what kind of artist? And I said, a scam artist, you know, because that, uh, that is what it is, uh, these days, you know, in order to survive, you know, you have to have, um, a million different hustles. So the, um, you know, obviously I, I write and sell my writing and plug my writing. I write music and make music and record music and, and sell vinyl and t-shirts and all that shit. And also the, yeah, I buy and sell guitars and I have for fuck, 20 years now. Yeah. Um, and then I recently got into like buying and selling cars, um, which is that's way harder to make money at. And it's more sort of like an expensive, fun uh, hobby. And also, uh, I don't know, man, what are you selling? 
uh, do you need, how can I make a buck here and stay out of the but living? The car thing seems more intense because I don't imagine you have enough room where you can keep many of them at any given time. Like part of that must be like whatever Zen of motorcycle maintenance kind of thing. Like, do you actually get in there and do it? And like, yeah, I, you know, I have a couple of great friends who, um, you know, who have sort of given me, you know, help and instruction and pointed out to me that, you know, the sixties and seventies cars are not in incredibly complicated um and you know they're like you know not to shit on working people but you know your mechanic is not uh you know particularly intelligent guy he just knows this goes there and that goes there and this goes there you know that kind of thing and fucking figure it out basically which is you know what we've and and that is a skill that i've had my whole life of just figuring it out um, so I made a lot of mistakes. Um, guitars don't typically catch on fire when you do yeah. something wrong. Uh, I did blow up a truck, um, last year that was, uh, terrifying and, uh, and who knows how many like near misses I've had, but, um, it's fun as shit. And it's the, I mean, maybe this is our way into the conversation about Lanigan is it's, there's so much like masculine validation when you have an old car that doesn't start and you try this and that doesn't work and you try this and that doesn't work and then you try the third thing and the fucking thing starts yeah it you know i had this old uh, chevy that ran great but didn't drive and then i figured it out and that first drive around the block going 10 miles an hour was like so thrilling you know it was incredible yeah um, and also, you know, to be in your mid forties and to be learning a new thing and figuring a thing out, that's exciting. You know, I mean, I'm asking as someone I've, I'm jealous. I'm someone of a few hobbies, I would say like almost none, um, to a kind of problematic degree because I had to hustle so hard to make the thing that I do like work at all. Um, but yeah. What, one of the things I appreciate you is that you work with a level of neurosis I've only ever seen in sober addicts without being a sober addict. So it's like you got that, like, uh, I must work until I die thing without having to go through the uh, the trench of vomit, you know, necessary to be an, an alcoholic. I mean, one of our commonalities, dude, is I, I mean, I have not had an addict addiction problem or a substance problem. And my father, I mean, he was found like dead on a train platform when I was nine years old and yeah. did have some substance problems. I never really knew him. So it's this sort of indirect connection to like the recovery thing, which I think yeah, there's masculinity in Lanigan. I mean, he's the kind of guy like I'll play around my house and I'm like, oh yeah, my wife's gonna not <laughs> enjoy this. Like, or maybe she'll enjoy it a little bit more. She she literally will talk about like, I don't like the the singers that go, arr, arr. and I'm like, yeah, technically he does that, but like, so does you know Leonard Cohen, and like Leonard Cohen will slip in. Women will enjoy the music of Leonard Cohen, generally speaking. So there's exceptions, and I feel like Lanigan's on the line. But one of my forms of connection to him is like this, you know, someone with like severe alcoholism and substance abuse in my family line that um, it's like this way of like touching it through him and his music and his world in an indirect way. Like I'm not big into the recovery world because if it's talking too much about the thing itself and bottoming out, I don't understand that. But if it's talking about the psychology of someone that's just like, uh, you know, like, like there's this granular torture of the day to day. Um,
Yeah. I kind of get it, you know, like, and it's, it's interesting to hear someone floating in that reality. Um, Cause I think I do, you know, and I, again, I don't know enough about recovery culture to know if I'm using the word dry drunk um, correctly, but like that, there is part of that, I think in my DNA, is that a common thing? Like in, in drink, in, in recovery culture, like people talk about like, there's this neurosis, this obsessiveness, and I need to find some place to put it like. Yeah, the, you know, I, I mean, I've a lot of, you know, sober addicts I've met um, are um, sort of move through their lives in a, a pretty frantic way of, um, you know, wake up and do spin class or running or lifting weights or whatever. And then, you know, the, the podcast or the job, and you know, and then this and then woodworking and then gardening and, you know, and I mean, I think part of it is that, um, substitutive activities basically, or like, yeah, I mean, in order to become an alcoholic or an addict, you jettison everything from your life that you can get out of your life and replace it with drugs or alcohol, you know? So when I finally stopped drinking, I was like, well, what the fuck do I do? You know, like the, my day is now like uh, six to eight hours longer and I have no idea how to fill that space. And that space is horrifying. That is the abyss, you know, the, of like what to do with yourself that, you know, the act of like physically quitting drinking is really not that hard. The trick is finding something to put in its place. And when we, you know, when we're making that decision, when we're going through that process, we are, um, we're, we're incredibly frantic and panicked. So you do it in a manic way. And then I think it's difficult to to dial that back um you know so i have uh, i have nothing but respect for you for you know arriving at that level of mania uh well i think it was just i think i think i basically like understand why people drink i think it's like it helps fade that drive i always wonder if like the drive comes after drinking because and again someone that's never really had a intense drinking thing but i've always had to count drinks like i literally like i drink but i count and it's like part because i have this like horror show warning signs of what happens if i don't and i wonder if the drinking comes because people are so frantic that this is what blurs out life and allows them to do less or if the doing all this stuff is filling the space that would normally be filled with drinking like i or are there two different types i mean it's like it's really curious man i mean my cousin is a singer. Um, his name's Max Bemis. He has a project called Say Anything. And in the early 2000s, he was like one of the poster boys for the emo revival, like open for Dashboard Confessional. He was like, I, I, I know this band. Yeah. Yeah. He's like the harder edged version of Bright Eyes, like this very deep self-examining songs. And, you know, he's had multiple. This is my cousin, you know, like our, our fathers were brothers and he's had multiple, you know, slide off the slide off the tracks moments. Um, but when he comes back, I mean, he does this insane thing called the song shop because he has a lot of obsessive fans. He kind of like you as his following that just like they're focused on him. And like he'll do this thing where he will take commissions for like a hundred dollars a pop and write people their own song and do like 200 of them, you know? Wow. And I'm just like, wow, that's like, and I, I, I think about him a lot. We don't talk that much, but we do talk. And like, I'm like, yeah, I have that kind of energy. 
basically like mine's filled with doing weird admin or accounting or too many different things or you know juggling six record projects that i'm going to put out in a year also running the legal affairs quote unquote such that it is for my company like but i'm like yeah i get that energy man i get that i get that energy so i I'm, i'll throw this out there uh totally off the top of my head but the um there's a great podcast uh, which I'll try and find a link to about a guy who was uh, studying the difference between the brains of psychopaths and the, the brains of people who aren't psychopaths. And so he did MRIs of a bunch of, um, you know, convicted uh, killers and stuff. And then he didn't have enough MRIs for the control group. So yeah. he did um, uh, MRIs of he, himself and his family. And then as he was going through the stacks, he was like, well, I mean, this, obviously somebody put this in the wrong pile this one in the control group is clearly the brain of a psychopath and so he put it in it and then he looked at it and it was his brain and what he discovered was that he was indeed a, a sociopath or a psychopath or you know the um and and he had shown all the signs of like you know waiting 10 years to get revenge on someone or like just closing the door and shutting people out of his life entirely but that he had had this magical childhood where his entire childhood he felt loved and supported by both of his parents and you know was sort of like deeply engaged in the world so he went on to become a you know a very successful uh, neurosurgeon but maintained these psychopathic tendencies so i am hereby now um, diagnosing you uh, as a doctor of podcasting, I am di diagnosing you as a uh, a, a pre-alcoholic, an, al an an alcohol, an abstaining alcoholic, yeah. an unalcoholic. You know yeah. that maybe you got um, all that stuff that um, that alcoholics and addicts have, but be you know because of the horrific loss of your father and the sort of resounding lessons from that you never went um into the red like the rest of us did yeah yeah, a, yeah. i mean that's just like yeah i mean there is a whole thing there's like an al-anon like adult al adult children of alcoholics I'm, I'm getting the abbreviation right wrong but i've i've touched on that stuff but um i'm gonna get i'm not good at the whole video podcasting thing scares me i'm gonna go get a uh a face light. I don't have a ring light. You just have. It looks like you just have Arizona sun on you. Oh, that's oh, not yeah. any better. Yeah. Um, it was good enough. though. I, I I enjoyed you uh, sitting in the, you know in the darkness too because I feel like you're embracing your uh, Richard Dreyfus in Jaws. Um, the, yeah, the hat does it. Um, <laughs> the that's the it's your toque though, right? Because you're in Canada now. Uh, I'm actually back in Brooklyn. We oh, came okay. back in the right. fall. So yeah, we did a, a bunch of pandemic time um, in Toronto where people are saner. You're a Canadian too, correct? Yep. The uh, Starting in uh, late 2015, I became hella Canadian. <laughs> what does that even mean? What does that mean? But when Trump got elected, I was got fucking it. Canadian yes. as hell, man. You started bringing it up more. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. The, well, let's... Um, yeah, let's, I mean, should we talk some land again? And, yeah, and, yeah, let's die. I, I'm, you know, we've talked a little bit about this in texts and emails and conversations and stuff, but I'm really curious to know, because I feel like you were a, a um, like I was a late adopter and you were an even later. You were my gateway in, like uh, so in I'm, multiple, in multiple fashions, you were my gateway in. And honestly, I'm like, if I can, 
yeah, be some kind of gateway out of helping you process like what it's meant to you. Like that would be, I feel like it was a real gift. I mean, basically like beginning of the pandemic, like March, I think I had tracked when the book sold and you were kind of connected to it when they announced the book. And I was like, go on Mishka, like another kind of like another angle on the sort of writing and the literary life. And then I got it in like April, 2020, I think. Um, and it's just like, whoa, like just got pulled in. And I think a lot of times what I do when I read music books, I will listen to the music of the person I'm reading about alongside. If it's a chronological one, I'll put together a playlist. And I just went in deep. And I think at one point I was like, this guy's discography is insane. I don't understand what's going on here. There's too much. And I think you helped me in. You were like, they're not as popular. Like Spotify is not going to tell you these are the million play songs but try with animals and uh, black pudding with Duke Garwood. And I was, and I'd heard those songs and been impressed by those songs, but just dipping deep in there, I was like, wow, this is completely my world. And, and, you know, Houston publishing demos that, that record that yeah. he made in 2002, didn't put out till 2015. I'm assuming because of, you know, in a Neil Youngish kind of ditch trilogy way, he just had such bad associations with his psychology at the time. And that's what took him a decade plus to release it. Um, but yeah, no, it's quite literally, like I think I was getting some texts from you, like try this, try that, or Twitter DMs or whatever they were. Um, and it was the book that you, you know, helped him get out, helped get out of him. Um, Cause I know you, you know, you're very circumspect about, you know, what your role is. Well, you, um, yeah. you actually, you actually, you know, uh, nailed it when you said that I was the doula for the book because that that's that describes perfectly what my role was. You know, is that um, you know, I mean, and I, I I facilitated you know the same thing that you do with with bands and musicians and stuff like that. You know, the um, so you know a lot of it was just just being a fucking fanboy and stalking him and then not going away. <laughs> Just. Was it mostly was it mostly digital communication? I mean, I'm assuming because it's a literary thing, it actually lends itself in a good way to digital world. Or would you have to like pick up the phone and be like, dude, like, because you know, phone calls can land more softly. This is something I remember from my relationship with editors. If you get yeah. this document that's just boom, 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 it can be overwhelming. Whereas if someone's like, let me introduce the things I think are wrong with this, sometimes it can be a little bit of a softer, yeah, yeah, touch. The so. Initially, it was just uh, DMing through Twitter, and then uh, we met up for lunch, and then it was um, almost exclusively digital. We we talked on the phone a bunch. Um, you know, Lanigan liked talking on the phone, and the but it's um, you know it, it it was just such a bizarre experience because I was such a fan. And celebrity is a thing and it feels like, a, you know, a third presence in the room. And it was the, you know, talking to Lanigan on the phone, it's like, well, I'm talking to Batman or, <laughs> you know, or I'm talking to, um, it's like you're talking to an idea, you know, oh, I'm, I'm talking to the God of lightning, you know, the, you know, not that you're talking to a person. And so I, I, I like really quickly had to, um, train my brain to get rid of that and just talk to him person to person and then editor to writer and then friend to friend and um you know and when we became friends the um 
that that was really rewarding because it's like um in order to successfully be alone you need to forget how to be with other people and in order to be a celebrity's friend or let me rephrase that in order to be one of your heroes friends you need to forget your hero worship and just be a friend to them but then there were there would be times where i was reminded why he was a hero and that was incredibly rewarding you know to um you know for him to be my buddy and for him to make me laugh and sometimes piss me off and sometimes often piss me off often hurt my feelings and then to have him uh you know say just text me something that was incredibly poetic or you know incredibly personal that showed that you know he was um you know taking me into his trust uh so so rewarding you know the um and it's funny too because the as um one of the things i will say in praise of social media is that i feel like it um you know in the same way that it's it's created this horrific echo chamber for conservative politics it's also exposed a lot of us to um you know more progressive poli politics and you know sort of more refinements there and um the you know toxic masculinity is a phrase that you hear sort of like over and over and over again to the point where it's just uh it's just a clot of syllables with no meaning um and then reading lanigan's um you know like reading a chapter that he'd written about you know him living in his leather jeans and like drinking and blacking out and you know uh driving 400 miles on his motorcycle and waking up in it i was like this is so sexy and now i understand toxic masculinity because this um mark lanigan when he was whatever 25 bad dude not a, not a good guy right the you know still like an you know, a very sort of like an artist in his nascent stage, you know, but not, not a good person, not a good friend, not a good boyfriend, not a good son, you know, the, but reading about um, the, who he was, the mistakes he was making, the shit that he was doing, the, it was in incredibly attractive, you know, the, where, um, you know, magnetic, you know, against your will, your, the you know and and friends you know who i had um does he have does he have friends from back then that yeah what was his relationship i mean i think i was trying to grok a little bit like i listened to kxp the day he died february 22nd um and they had i think um they had like a, i think one of the drummers the original drummer for the screaming trees on there who sounded like he still had fond feelings almost maybe it was before Lanigan was like really in like the heroin, like, you know, the, the darker, like fuck everybody kind of drug mm. part of things. Like, did you get a sense of his network of relationships and friendships? I mean, my, my sense is his world was largely constructed with like the post, the Queens of the stone age, even if he had relapses, you know, I think as late as like the 2010s or something like that, like that he had, he essentially had found a community of people that had had really toxic, hard, and come through it kind of people, like the badass LA musicians that I would be, when I lived in LA, that I would be like, there was this A&R person named Laurel Stearns that worked for Capital, tatted up all of her arms, like 
super cool and like she'd invite me to things and I'd be like I'm just not I'm not badass <laughs> enough to be in those rooms but I could hang with her and I could be in those rooms but I'd have to like I didn't have the stories to share with them you know of like this is when I hit rock bottom and I, my sense is he had like the rock bottom dudes club or something like that and and you know girlfriends and partners and you know badass people like did you get any sense of that from him I, I can't remember like how much of this memory is true but i i can't remember if you put me on the list or if we went together to go and see yeah yeah yeah's in la when they were like just oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah that was probably me i don't know why that maybe i would have had a plus one but yeah i, I know that yeah. show you're talking about and yeah yeah because yeah, yeah, we john hung spencer out. blues explosion opened. yeah yeah no john spencer blues explosion closed yes. and i was like oh shit the era is changing because yep. many more people care about the AAS than John Spencer right here. And and we were in the line for the guest list with um, the, of course I blank on every band name, the, with uh, fucking Zach Della Roca from Rage Against the Machine and the, you know, uh, oh, fuck, the stoner melvin's uh the dude from the melvin's okay, yeah, 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 yeah. and, and then it was then it was sort of like you and i you know and the um no i i definitely the i sensed that lanigan hung with a like a real life for a crowd the um we were hanging out in his backyard once and like greg dooley like popped by for a second and the and when lanigan introduced me uh greg was like oh hi oh you know like nice nice to find you must be one of us basically uh, like kind of thing or well no like the um like he'd heard my name and the and that was so oh god that was so gratifying <laughs> it's like the um you know it made me feel really cool and uh the and you know and i think that was one of the things about lanigan is that the i'm 45 now i was probably like 38 or 39 um his he had so much gravitas such like just alpha male shit that at you know at 40 you know to get a thumbs up from him was still titillating for me you know that it um it didn't just reduce me to like being a child again it reduced me to like being a fucking puppy you know the and i think do you remember uh were you a stephen king fan not really no not really i mean i mean i was aware of him from from a kid but and i recently just read his book on writing um but yeah not a not super aware yeah why there was this story which i think was in like the bachman books when he was you know writing under a pseudonym and it's about um they discover uh teleportation but one of the things they discover about teleportation is that you need to um, uh, you need to be unconscious when you teleport because otherwise okay. you go fucking insane. And uh-huh. then you know, so as it's a great story as they're unfolding, you know, the the history of teleportation, um, it's interspliced with um, you know a family preparing for taking a trip or whatever, and they go to like the the teleport, you know, and the um, and then there's a little like nine year old kid who's like, well, everybody takes the gas and goes to sleep. What if I fake it? Yeah. Yeah. And so then he, he pretends to inhale, pretends to fall asleep. 
and then goes through the teleportation um, while he's awake. And it's Stephen King. So of course he comes out the other end with like white eyes and white hair, like cackling, you know, and he's, and he's sort of like, you know, staring at his dad and before he like tears his eyes out or something, you know, horrible and dramatic like that. He's like, you know, um, feels like just a minute, but it's longer than, longer than you thought, dad, you know, like longer than, longer than you would think, you know, um, which is that this child, um, you know, an intelligent, thoughtful, curious, sensitive child has done the unthinkable and taken a journey of, you know, 10,000 miles in the blink of an eye. And it's taken a fucking toll on him. And Lanigan and his life, um, heroin, crack, methamphetamine, how many, how many times had he been in a coma? I, I don't know, yeah. a lot. How many times had he been dead I had had his heart actually stop and come back to life. The I you know I'm not a particularly sort of woo woo person, but um, it doesn't you don't have to believe in in too much of that shit to. I mean, it, just the metaphors of like you know a a yeah, soul going back to, to or, yeah. yeah going to hell and then coming back like fucking nine times. You know the that would that changes a person. And the, um, and it had changed him. It had absolutely changed him. You know, the, the, um, the suffering that he had been through the, and, and coupled with the bliss, right? Because heroin feels amazing. <laughs> the, um, the, you know, I can't remember the comedian, you know, the, um, but, you know, has, has this riff about, you know, how terrible heroin is and like the, the cost of like the, you know, when you inject heroin, you know, you're, you're probably going to die and it destroys your body and it destroys your mind. And like, man, it must be really great. <laughs> you know, you get people to do that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, my sense is he's also the sheer amount of work there is, is so completely insane um, that there was also somewhat of a isolation, like an almost writerly like knocking it out and you know some of the vocals that he would do on things were workmanlike like i could definitely get a sense it was work at times i mean it always had magic to it but it wasn't always like this is the thing i need to do next it was like this is work i am going to do work like i mean literally if you just look at guest appearances and vaguely uncredited guest appearances from the past five years i mean it's dozens and dozens and dozens and moving to ireland i imagine there was a certain bit of embracing isolation to go there um or just like you know i'm just gonna have my microphone set up and i'm gonna go um i think it's very odd like thinking about what his time was like is really weird like because he was a pandemic discovery, I, there was never even the possibility of like, oh, I will get to see this person perform. I will get to see, I will get to be part of this. I will get to commune with this. And that's one weird thing about the loss, especially coming at this time where things are starting to open up. It's like this very visceral, like I will not get a chance to see that. And I, this is like one of the things that I was hoping that I would get to see possibly look at. I was like, I've looked a little bit on a song kick, this website that like aggregates every tour date someone's ever done. Um, it's I think it's part partly fan powered and connects to a lot of promoters and just like seeing 
like, oh, wow, he was in New York in this year in 2018. And I could have gone to that. Like, yeah, it's very. Uh, so I, I never yeah. saw him perform either. Interesting. And when did you connect with him? Was it like 2019? It was 2018. It was pretty like. What the year is it now? Uh, 2022. From when he started writing the books to when they published, like those were fairly rapid turn times. No? Yeah. The. Um, so this is a weird thing. I actually had, um, I had enough like presence of mind to, uh, when I switched phones six or eight months ago, I bought a program to download all my old messages with Lanigan. So I have every message we ever exchanged from, from the last uh, six years, I think. And uh, that's fucking wild. The first, let's see, let me see if I can find what's what was the first one. First one was October 17th, 2017. And that was after we had had lunch. Um, so we'd already been in touch for a year or two by that point. The but man, like, you know, this is the the first page of texts, right? The, I, you know, I said, oh, I'm about to pick up, my, he was sick. And I said, I'm about to pick up my rental car near, near LAX. Are you dead yet? And he said, last time I looked, no. And I said, well, hang on then. Um, want me to stop and grab anything on my way over? Food, beverages, euthanasia. And he said, euthanasia. And I said, soon, but not yet. You know, I mean, at the and so to like go back and look at you know our communication, it's uh, the man walks right back into the room, you know, and and that's one of the things I really struggled with uh, losing him is that the you know there is the pain and the grief and the loss and the, like lots of conflicted feelings, but also the the space he took up in in my head in my life, you know, the that you know, with him leaving the room, you're like, holy fucking shit. That is a big hole that that is a huge absence. You know, the, um, what I would offer us to console us, um, the, for not never having seen him perform is I would argue that listening to Mark Lanigan is sort of like pornography it is, it is, it is such a, an acute, uh, a personal thrill that it's best experienced alone. alone. Well, he was, he was also quite, he's, he was a bit shy, like on some level, right? Like he was like this very magnetic performer, but you know, when you read about him, it's like the death stare and sitting there and grabbing the microphone. Like he was not, um, he came up in this era of showmen, like all those Seattle guys, one way or the other, whether it was, you know, Kurt Cobain was not like doing acrobatics, but he was very much conscious of like, I'm wearing this t-shirt and repping for this thing in this photo shoot. Whereas Lanigan was more like, I don't want to say demon or, you know, but like rate, like, you know, he was like a golem or something, you know, like, so that, that implies some kind of shyness to, to him. It's like all the greats wanted to work with him, you know, like, and greats, like people that I have frankly less respect for than I do for him as a musician, but like, you know, I didn't know about Mad Season and that like he's all over that record with Lane St Staley or like, Stanley. I can't remember how you say his last Staley. name. 
yep. from um, from uh, uh, Alice in Chains. You're like all these kind of people wanted him around, but he was not that. You know, it was something sort of weirder and darker and more internal. But he could sort of go toe to toe with them or add something to their thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, the I I don't think that he was shy. I think he was uh, recalcitrant. The you know maybe maybe he was shy when he was younger. The um, he he was a very sort of earnest and sincere person, you know. But the one of the things that makes it so tricky to sort of grieve him um, is trying to pin him down because um, uh, he was shy and he was also totally fearless and he was um, you know an incredibly thoughtful and gentle soul and he was a prick and the and one of the things you know that's um some you know you would fucking hate me for saying this but it's but it's true and we need to take an, an accurate honest measure of his life and his work and one of the things that's so hard with uh with Lanigan is that um sometimes uh music was his calling you know that he was um when he put his when he put the microphone up to his mouth uh yeah. He, was, he was in conversation with with God or with his God. Yeah, there's like an effortlessness. You hate to say about any creative person that it's effortless because it takes a toll and it's hard. But like, you got the sense that he got very good results in an easier fashion than some of us, or at least a more frequent fashion. Or his batting average was better. I don't know how to put it, but like his bad recordings. I made a playlist after he died. I finally compiled and I, I called it a compendium. It's like a hundred plus songs. And I'm like, I like all of these. Like, yeah, there's definitely ones that I find more magic in, but like random things he did for a TV soundtrack. I'm like, this is sort of mad. Like there's a magic to it. Yeah, always. The, so if there is a master list floating around somewhere on Spotify and it's over 24 hours of music. Yeah. The, yeah. I, I want to do that at some point of just to say, all right, I'm going to listen to it all, you know, yeah. Yeah, without, without a break. But what were you uh, saying? Uh, music was his calling. I don't want to. Uh, well, I, I, I say sometimes it was sometimes when he put his, his, his mouth to the microphone, he was in conversation with the divine and um, he was performing his life's great work. And sometimes his life's great work was heroin. And when he put his mouth to the microphone, he was punching the clock and, um, and he would hate me for saying that, you know, but there are, um, you know, Mark served two masters. He served, um, he served art and he served addiction and those are opposite masters. You know, am I right? That it, it was, am I right? It was relatively recently that he got clean. I mean, we're within a decade of his, his death clean yeah. finally you know like that you from what you know i mean and you would know better than i and that's all i'm looking for i'm not looking for like you know dates or receipts or whatever but it's that conversation is murky yeah hmm. you, you know the um be, because yeah you know the i've already told the story so i'll do the you know the the, the quick version but um, the, the um, 
you know, he told a story about being in rehab, uh, Courtney Love putting him in rehab and him just having this like, you know, shattering epiphany and falling to his knees and God speaking to him directly and every cell in his body being charged. And I was like, Mark, that's fucking incredible. So like, so that was it. You just got sober. And he was like, Oh no, no, no. I, you know, there was, that was before like the meth and the crack. I got kicked out of that program 13 times. Finally, they banned me for life, you know, but, <laughs> but I had the epiphany. That's, like... that's when I made up my mind, you know, and it did, you know, it did change him. Absolutely. You know, the, um, but it's, you know, I, I think with addiction, sometimes it's like the, a massive old uh, sailing vessel turning around, you know, at, at one, at some point, the captain will make a decision. We're turning this ship around. And then they, it, and then the captain's mind is made up, but it takes four fucking ever for that big rickety old boat to actually come around. Yeah. You know? Does he have, um, in terms of your processing, are you in touch with other people that knew him or was it pretty much like, you had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with them because it was through these projects and it was through a pandemic and it was through, yeah. And I'm asking partially just in terms of like how you're processing it and partially like, do you have him for like, do you know, are there things left? Was he, he was writing, he kept writing, like you kind of kicked something off on him that unfortunately is not gonna flower into a lot more, but is there a little more kind of left or what do you know about the, in the last couple of years, we were, we, you know, the book did so well that they were sort of like, all right, you know, we're ready for, you know, uh, number two, uh, sing backwards and weep to uh, electro boogaloo, you know, yeah. or whatever the fuck, you know, the, but um, we, he was determined not to write um, like the second part and he was determined not to uh, not to write another memoir and uh, he and I fought a lot about what the, the next direction would be. And the, um, he, we, we sort of pitched uh, like a fictionalized um, memoir. The, uh, w w the working title was like Mark Lanigan is dead. And, the, and, and so it was gonna be sort of like a dream a little bit in, you know, in, in the way that you making it fiction would allow him to, to, to tell stories that he wouldn't be able to tell otherwise um, yeah, and, and hopefully get at sort of like a greater truth and also sneak in a lot of true shit that he wouldn't be able to say if it was, you know, if, there, if we were saying it was a memoir. Too dark, proper names. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, and then uh, we, we had, we had interest from publishers and then we had a big fight and a falling out and fucking name calling and stuff. Um, the, um, I do have a couple of apology emails from him that I'm going to get somebody to fucking cross stitch and hang up on my wall because when you've been an addict for like 30 or 40 years, you know how to write the shit out of a fucking apology. <laughs> like he, the, he really like fucked me up and hurt my feelings sometimes, but then the. He would come, come to a counter. He would sort of understand. Yeah. 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 The, I called him a diva cunt once. And for which I feel rotten. And also 
that saved our relationship in that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, Lanigan was a hard man, and the um, there's stuff he understood and stuff he didn't understand. And you know, sometimes the only way for in in order for me to communicate to him was um, through uh, brutality, you know, or um, you know. There were, there were times where I thought that it, it was going to pop off and we were going to swing on each other. You told me, I mean, actually, one thing you, uh, when I talked to you, I think a couple months after I had read the book, you were like, you know, he's, he definitely has a good thing going with Heavenly, but I don't know if that record thing is going to last forever. Would you want to talk to him? And I was like, I was like, I don't know, man. Like, that sounds too <laughs> I, I felt weird about, about like bringing that up to you because I was like, I like you. So, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing you a lot here. I mean, honestly, like, yeah. Look, I mean, also the scale of the thing I've been doing for 20 years now is small. The only way it works is if I sign people before they have the agency to completely say, fuck you. It's like, it's really working with people at a nascent moment. And I'm trying to take my own turn of my, you know, it's a very small ship in terms of employees. And, you know, we basically hire people on a freelance basis. We've had employees over the years, but, you know, the structure of what it is, I'm trying to shift into something different because I'm getting older and I can't always discover something where I'm like, if it's not doing better five years from now, then when I sign it, I've done something wrong. Like, it's hard to be the one that's waiting five years all the time, but I'm not ready to walk into the room with someone like Lanigan, who's been on like, you know, how many major labels has he done projects with? How many indie labels has he done projects with? Like, that actually excites me, the idea of working with someone like that. But the the sense of expectation and the sense of like, I've seen it all and I've been fucked and now I'm gonna just like throw that punch if I sense that someone's coming at me with some bullshit. Um, I'm not prepared. I need more, I need more reinforcements to deal with that, you know? Um, the, yeah. People love to shit on artists because we're all crazy. But uh, uh, Luisa Diaz, who's, uh, brilliant i gotta get her on the podcast she said something about um you know getting her feelings hurt one day and and then realizing that in order to be a performer you have to get your feelings hurt uh every fucking day and the and i was like you know or specifically to be a comedian and because you're working with the audience and sometimes they don't they don't come with you you know and like to be a singer songwriter it's like i uh i hurt my own feelings uh professionally <laughs> You know, the and somebody like Lanigan, who has been um, an, an incredibly intimate artist at every level for such a long time, you think about the psychic wars that he's endured, not just with his, um, you know, addiction and relationships and sort of coming to terms with his upbringing, the but but also just the thing of I've created a thing I've created something I created this song I created this album I created this work that that, that I love that I you know this is my child like I I esteem this more than anything else in the world and then to talk to somebody at a record label and they're like oh yeah you'll get ten yeah. percent of the sales you know like not as good as your old stuff but yeah this has to wait this has to wait six months I have these other things that are bigger priorities you know whether you say it directly or not yeah those are hard conversations I mean I think one thing that saved me is I've you know I was actually like an actor like in high school and in college and I was in improv comedy groups my first and then at some point I was like I just like a switch flipped like sophomore year of of 
of college. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I kind of went towards writing and this sort of back end side of things. And I think it's like to be a vulnerable person is something very compelling to watch, but you're still that vulnerable person. And like, I think I, you know, have built in some self-protection essentially. And like when I help supervise people's projects into the world, like there's still a sensitivity. Like if something gets shit on, I still feel it, but it's not like it's a meta feeling, you know, it's like I presented this thing to you and you didn't care. Not like I presented this thing and you didn't care, you know, like, and, and I've been a little self-protective about that. I mean, I look, I mean, it takes me like, a, a, you know, a half hour, an hour to get the balls to like turn on the screen on the zoom and, and talk to you, you know, like, so like to think about being in a room where, yeah, I can't even, yeah. What? I have to be honest in the, how long have we known each other now? 20 years? Yeah. I mean, give or take like a yeah. year. Yeah. Like, the, and um, probably on the longer side. Cause I imagine, yeah, I think it was when I was first getting to know New York. I met you around when your friend. Uh, Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause I knew his uh, partner uh, yeah. pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the points of connection, but yeah. The um, yes, yeah, so that'd be 2001. The um one of the things that you know i've envied about you and also that i think has gotten in the way uh, at, at times has sort of been an obstacle in our friendship is um seeing you and being friends with you and and you are this incredibly thoughtful and uh sensitive and sort of engaged person um but also the as a writer in new york at that time and as somebody who's running a, a record label um there has to be constant hustle right you know you're always whether you, once you learn to network it's not a skill you can ever turn off and i would catch myself doing it and be like go oh, man you suck oh <laughs> fucking that's the grossest just be just be yourself just you know and the and you know and and, and you and i've been involved in sort of like business negotiations and stuff like that and there were definitely times where I would see the, I would watch you disengage or see the self-protective thing come up. And uh, and it was maddening because the reason it came up is to, to make it harder to reach you. And it was maddening for me because then it was harder to reach you. And also I was envious because I, I didn't have that and I needed that. I, I needed to be able to, to put that screen up or um, to, to just be able to retreat a little bit. So it's, you know, it's one of those things about, you know, sort of like having, being born sensitive and also um, working in a field where you need to be both sensitive and insensitive, uh, being in New York at a certain time, having these ambitions or aspirations, having this specific experience, you know, the... But yeah, the, you know, so we do, we require that armor. I mean, know? I'm thinking like the one thing I, I'm not actually super envious of my more successful friends. Um, and I definitely have, have them. Like, I actually think part of the trick of success that seems like such a bummer is you kind of have to keep the armor up forever and the gates get higher and it gets weirder. And I think you know, as I think of like, it's, it's an anniversary for the label. It's been about 20 years, like June, 2021 would have been roughly when we started it, uh, 20, the 20 year mark from when we started it. So I, you, I probably met you either just before or just after I started the damn thing. 
And my goals for the next 10 years are if there have to be barriers to let other people be running those barricades and like to actually connect more. And I see people that are trapped in just being performers and like somewhat famous performers, like that's just, that's armor they need to put on every day. And I, I kind of want to like unilaterally disarm, like that is my goal for the next 20 years of life. I mean, the one other thing that, that occurs to me, this is a somewhat of a tangent, but like, I still think about Mark Lanigan, like I don't think of him as an artist I love as the person who who wrote those songs with the screaming trees. What is it? Uh, first, uh, what's the shit? What was the hit? Um, nearly never lost you. you. Nearly lost you. Like, but I think one thing when I rediscovered his work and fell in so deep with his work in 2020 was like he's still like TV grunge guy to me, and actually the path that he actually walked later in life was a much nichier, more intimate connection with his audience, much more following his muse rather than any desire to make a hit kind of world that he was following. Um, but it's weird thinking like, he's not this 20, 30 year old making hits anymore. He's doing, he's chosen to do this other thing. And to think that like, wow, we're now out of the twenties and thirties, like we're, late career creative people wow shit how what's our responsibility to that because you know to a certain extent it's like we are we are middle-aged bro and we're not people that have like i don't envy friends that are way more successful we're somewhat they're doing it because they're chasing their muse if they're lucky but some you know or you'll look at a band and you'll be like that guy's still managing to chase his muse but these two people are supporting either their family or their chosen family of the tour manager and the right. sound person and the merch seller and the manager and the lawyer. And, and, and that's like a weird life to live. And I, you know, just thinking about old legends and where they fall on this continuum of like, how much are they doing it? Cause they want to do it. How much are they doing it? Cause they feel like they're supporting this whole thing. Um, it's weird. I actually want to make sure, um, because both of us have a capability of talking long and I just want to plant a seed. I do want to talk about how you know Bartiz Strange, Bartiz Cox, because he's someone, I guess he's much older in your world. I think I might have figured out when I started working with him, like, you know, looking at when you look at someone's Twitter account, you're like, oh, also followed by XYZ. Like one of the weird ways that hyper networking has taken over our lives, but I do want to make sure we don't you know, I, I think yeah. we're, we're probably not going to go more than an hour and a half on this thing. And I think we've just hit the hour mark. I, I want to talk about your relationship with him and how far well, back you go. One, one, fi one final thing before we get to Bartiz is yeah. uh, um, I, you're, you led me right into something that I, I want to say that I've been meaning to say for a while, um, which is to speak directly to the, the Screaming Trees fans on the Mark Lanigan subreddit and at which point I want to say, uh, go fuck yourselves. We are not the same. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a Screaming Trees fan, you are, you're not necessarily a Mark Lanigan fan because he made such a hard break from that, you know, from that stuff and that world. Um, the, um, to do what he did to, to be authentic to himself, to, to, to sort of follow the muse. And if you are, if you keep bringing him, trying to drag him back into that quagmire of a band in which he was sort of like a karaoke vocalist, 
the go fuck yourself go listen listen to fucking bubblegum uh listen to blues funeral listening to listen to with animals listen to gargoyle the he it's a different thing man it's not it's not the same you know well i think yeah i mean i subsequently like really only after he died i listened to like the the demos screaming trees record that he put out and you know it seemed uh, like he'd taken over the band a little bit by that point so you could find traces of what yeah. he developed but it's weird to think that his greatest success quote unquote greatest success was like something that he essentially abandoned it was like the soil that like that the tree grew in basically is is very bizarre to think about it's hard to think about too many artists that manage that kind of trick um and i don't know if like the enormity of it I, it's all it's it's unfortunate that he died when he did after the success of the book because i think a lot of people gave him a new look when that book came out and it put him on radars of literary people and sort of more thoughtful people that would have possibly dismissed him just thinking of as him as a screaming tree or as i put it i have this you know this sub stack thing if i'm here to promote something it's it's not so much my record label brassland it's uh, i have this i send out mixtapes to a couple hundred people once a month or so and i and i wrote about him and like called him like i always thought of him as one of the grunge guys and i think that book was really the definitive break where he could say like no man i wrote a fucking book and i wrote it myself and it's harrowing and it's real and it's you know i read the dave grawl book um for fun as light going to sleep reading but it wasn't the dave grawl book that he was writing they were in different worlds even if they were in you know grawl being a very important part of screaming trees they were not they were colleagues you know like there's yeah. mutual respect there but lanigan was on this other muse that he was chasing and it's sad that it i feel like he could have had five years of not dining on that but like playing shows in a larger scale with a different level of respect and production because he was still playing the rock dives man like um and doing it beautifully but like it'd be it would have been lovely to see someone like that playing lincoln center's american songbook as awkward as the venue in which it takes place is it's it's like an honor and it would have been lovely to have seen him get more honors well even if he didn't care i don't know if he's someone that would have given a shit but no, th this is what I want to say to you and the, the and to whatever other Lanigan fans listening is that I know that um, a couple of years ago, he he did get to, I think it was like an electronic music festival that he got to curate and he got yep. to work with Peter Hook and he got to work with some, you know, some artists that reduced him to being a quivering puppy the same way that he reduced me to being a quivering puppy. And he got to work with some of these, you know, artists and, you know, to, to be greeted literally with open arms from them when he walked on stage. And the, I remember when he, you know, when he came back from that, that he was just like, um, he was giddy, he was over the moon, you know, and it was, it, it was tremendously meaningful to him. And, um, you know, I, I would, I would use the word joy, you know, yeah. that he did absolutely feel joy in, he felt joy in creation. He felt joy consuming the work of other artists and to have his work recognized by other artists he admired. Um, it was a big deal. Yes, it it, it, um, it was deeply fulfilling for him. Well, it's, it was interesting that so he did get some of that, you know. Yeah, he, he had some of his laurels. 
Um, yeah, we didn't get to talk about it, and I don't think we will, but there was this, I would, I would encourage everyone to look up 10 Commandments of Mark Lanigan, um, that I think it was in Q Magazine, just the letter let's, Q. Let's dive into it real quickly, I, because the, I mean, I'm going to have to have you back in six months to talk about the National Bartees or something like that, and yeah. I want to, I'm going to message Bartees and try and get him on, and the, but I do need to tell the story of how he and I met and how we became friends. Will you do that now, or will you, do you want to save that for some future moment? I mean, he'll, he's only going to be growing the next couple months, so. The, no, I, I will hit him. You, hit I want to make you tell me a little bit, maybe even if offline, if you're not, but do you want to put it on? on The, the nickel version, and I'll, I'll retell it because a story worth retelling is, I just met him at Main Drag Music. We just yeah. okay. We, maybe we, I even knew that somehow. You know, and the um, Carl Myers for twenty five years now has worked his ass off in Brooklyn to make Main Drag Music more than just a commercial venture, but to make it as like a halfway house for broken musicians, for wannabe musicians, for aspiring musicians. You know the and the. Um, when I was still in New York, I, I could walk in there and strike up a conversation with some random stranger about fucking anything. I, I could go in there and talk to somebody about sobriety for three hours and walk out empty handed, having bought nothing. And they would be like, great to see a man come back. Right. You know, so they, it's not, it's not the guitar center. Yeah. Yes. Like it's not yeah. like, Carl, yeah. you know, Carl and his core crew has really like the, I mean, if there's any business in Brooklyn, you should be supporting its main drag music because that's a business that supports musicians, you know, and the, um, I, I mean, I used to see the, the dudes from the national in there all the time and Nick Zinner and like, you know, I mean, that whole crew, like everybody who came out of New York in that time, but I was there one day hanging out, talking to people, looking at guitars. Um, there was this dude there and we started talking about offset fender guitars and like mij stuff and you know and then and it was the kind of thing where the you know sort of like a subway platform conversation where you're like oh i read that book and then you start talking about it and then you get on the train together and then you skip your stop because yeah. you're like well, no, no like, like let's let's keep talking let's my relationship know. with barty's started i mean literally someone was like you should get a coffee with this dude he's going he's going someplace but it wasn't about that it was kind of like just like this is someone you could connect with i have a feeling and i instantly connected with him and i think that's actually part of his magic that i think carries into the music but there is something extra musical about it i mean I, i've honestly been like i've done a, i did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a member of so percussion this guy josh quillen um uh and there's this whole genre of communication now it's like this parasocial thing, you know, it's like there's like the people you have relationships with in the real world. And then there's the people where you have these sort of mediated relationships with. And sometimes you're actually friends with them. And sometimes you just think you are. And I think of things like this podcast or things like meeting him immediately. Like, you know, I've been in a room with him probably a half dozen times. It's not like, you know, because we've really gotten to know each other since 2019, 2020, like during the coronavirus era. And I think, uh, He's just one of these people that gives you this feeling of like, mm, like I'm here and I'm engaged and I'm connected. And some people do that with their Twitter feeds. Some people do that by being in person. Some people do that, you know, having a conversation on the internet and sharing it with other people. It's, 
We're entering a weird Rubicon. It's not the Borg. You know, that's the fear of the internet and all this interconnectivity is that it's going to be one giant microprocessor and it's like, or macroprocessor. And it's actually something weirder. It's like a lot of, yeah, getting to know people quietly. Um, I, you know, this is a, a wild oversimplification, but like at his core, Bartiz is a good dude. And, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's that, it's that simple and it's that complex, you know, that he is sort of genuine, authentic, you know, the, the second time that I met him was when he gave me the keys to his apartment to stay there for like three days when I was in back visiting Brooklyn and needed a place to crash. Like the, I, I'm a person he's met once in a guitar yeah. shop for 15 minutes. Right. And then we just got to talking and got to be friends and, and then I heard his record and I was like, this is fucking great. You know, let's talk about this. The, and what, it's funny because the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him was like my appeal or his appeal to me was the opposite of maybe, um, you know, your experience or the way you were introduced, which is where I was like, nobody knows about this guy. You know, that's, that, that was the great thing was just that he was like, so, um, just so plugged in and so excited about it, enthusiastic about everything. And also, you know, I mean, I wrote about this in the article. I should go back and reread it. You know, was that, um, did you write about him? Yeah. I, I wrote a piece oh. about him, the, and you've actually read it cause we talked about it. Okay. Uh, okay. I need to go back okay. and reread it, but I, I talked about the, um, I mean, you know, let's be before he blew I, up, you wrote it. I mean, I kind of remember this. It's also the last couple of years have been this blur. Like oh, I think, yeah. The line between the parasocial and the actual social is very blurry because I feel like most of my social world has been virtual and like podcasts I'm listening to and people I'm doing Zoom calls with. And it has it's starting to like really open up in New York properly now. But like so just like the articles I read and knowing someone like it's just everything's like a flat it's oh. like it's like the problem with the screen. It's like, what do I prioritize? What is what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell, tell me about this article a little bit. Little well, bit I mean, I, I mean, just to be to be open and honest about it, like a white dude meeting a black dude and talking about music in a in a guitar shop, and I made all these assumptions about him about what kind of music he was listening to, and you know, and, and he talked about like um, TV on the radio and what a watershed moment that was for him. The and that was a meaningful moment moment for him um, because he was like, he wanted to make, you know, music that was influenced by Boney Bear and stuff like that. And the, when, when he and I started talking about music, I immediately went to black American music, hip hop and soul and stuff like that. The, you know, the stuff that I know, but the, where I made that assumption and I got it completely wrong. And he wanted to talk about like fucking Steely Dan and shit yeah. like that. And the, um, and also, you know, he said his, um, <clears throat> he was a child of mixed race parents. And so I said, Oh, a black person and a white person. And it's no, it's that his parents are both mixed race, the, oh, and man. how that informed his, um, experience being from Oklahoma and growing up around country music and like the um, and country music being white music absolutely white when he was growing up and the stuff that his parents were listening to and stuff like that so I, I, I sort of just called myself out for a bunch of dumb uh, outdated racial assumptions when it came to music and experience and stuff like that 
the but also uh how rewarding it was to be wrong with a guy like Bartiz who's just like oh yeah no I meant this not that you know that he never took offense to any of the like boneheaded things that I had assumed and it was just like yeah no let's move forward you know I mean it's a more extreme example but it's like I feel like over the last couple of years I've read a lot of like how to engage with a neo-Nazi and the way is not to be like, you suck neo-Nazi. I mean, there's times for that. If they're protesting down your street in your town, yeah, maybe that's the right approach. But if you bump into one in a more intimate fashion, yeah, getting it wrong and just focusing on how they're wrong is probably not going to get you anywhere. And I think he's someone that's very emotionally intelligent about that kind of thing. It's not that like people getting things wrong doesn't burn him up. It's just that he knows that there's no point in letting that drive a conversation. Um, the, and and also like getting things wrong sometimes. It, it, sometimes it's just a it's just clarification of oh I meant this and not that. And, oh okay, then you can move forward. You know yep. the um, the and also you know for him to not call me out on any of that you know those dumb assumptions gave me an opportunity to call myself out and the you know to do sort of some you know some introspection there um, um if you but, want we could do these lanigan things at the end we could we could yeah, I actually wrote them down on the screen i have the fucking i have the paper on me right here yeah let's like, let's dive into it man because i i think this will be good and funny the you want to just think well i i'm interested to hear your reflections on some of the things i mean like definitely it's funny like I actually did a, a a list for the Creative Independent um, that this website for like creative people run by Kickstarter, but it's a really very open-hearted, generous um, advice for creative people thing, and it was very like voice of God kind of stuff, like about accounting and contracts and and things like that. And and Lanigan's was very like like the flip side of like I've seen some shit, man, and like <laughs> you know like. So I'll start. Yeah, it's like, number one, it's good to be different. Um, maybe I'll read, the, I'll do the overview first. Stop me whenever you want. Well, I, I, I was, why don't you do one and talk about how that affected you and I'll do one and we can sort of, I don't know, do it that way. Maybe well, I'll pick them sort of, ran, I'll pick them randomly. Okay. I'm not going to go in order. Do you have it on your screen? or do I do, I do. Okay, great. Um, I mean, the, one of the ones that that killed me was like own or take care of an animal. It's like someone that's, you know, definitely childless, definitely um, the idea of caring and understanding how to care for things. For someone that's felt uncared for, that's probably hurt other people, that's probably, you know, seen the worst of, of human behavior. It's that one was interesting to me. So many times in his life, I think Lanigan had been a stray dog. You know, and the when I adopted my first cat, who was mostly dead when I got her, he sent me a text that was incredibly sweet. He was like, bro, I just got to tell you, like, I'm so happy for you. Uh, real men love cats, too. You know, that and, and, and the way that he phrased that was is so important, you know, that, you know, what he's saying is um, it's manly to care about another another animal another person another being it's um the yeah i mean i guess i, I 
doesn't need any elaboration. You know, that 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 he he was arguing that it is a masculine thing to to care, to be soft, to be tender. Um, man, I when I was looking after his animals, I mean, the reason uh, that I'm with animals is called with animals is because Duke Garwood was uh, looking after his his animals and oh. did the record on a four track sitting on Lanigan's dining room table. And there's sounds of the animals on every single song. Huh. And, uh, and I, I didn't see Lanigan's last American tour, um, which I could have gone to fucking all the shows if I wanted. Um, but I didn't because I was at his house uh, looking after his animals. Huh. And uh, he had, um, yeah, this little Pomeran- Pomeranian named uh, Moshi, who he adored, who and that dog was just falling apart. And when when Moshi died, uh, Landing was heartbroken. And um, I had sent him a song, and he said, you know, he was like, "This is a beautiful song, and I love it." And I would it it would bring me to tears if I had not just wept myself dry mourning this dog. You know the, um, you know Landing was you know. He was a hard ass, but I would challenge anyone who who didn't like him or or doesn't like him to see him with his animals and not recognize his humanity. You know. Yeah. You the, uh, I'm going to do number nine. Uh, get your hands in the dirt. Bullshit, Mark. Bull fucking shit. I call bullshit on you. God damn it. I never, I never saw him. <laughs> gardening or doing anything outdoors or the you know i love him for saying that and fucking bullshit dude you know i i i think what was almost tell me what his deal was with ireland like what was was that completely out of nowhere I, i i read somewhere that it was like and maybe it was an interview with him so he could be a little bit closer to his touring base because I definitely think he was bigger in Europe than he was in the States in this second mode of his career, if only because there's smarter music audiences in more major cities that are closer together, you know, like you have to kind of go, you have to travel yeah. a lot to get to those places. But was it like he was he was way bigger over there than he was here. They were like, you know, he and Shelly were just done with America after that uh, fucking Trump nightmare. Yeah. Got it. and all that shit um he wanted to be in portugal his band was all dudes from belgium and the netherlands and stuff like yeah. that so in in so many ways it made sense and then i think uh, uh portugal was closed got it and then donald Logue, uh the actor who i've met a couple of times great fucking dude yeah. Um, and uh, parasocial. I had no idea who it was, but I think in looking through like morning Lanigan tweets, I discovered who, and I'm like, oh, wow, this is a whole thing. Cause I don't watch a lot of TV. Yeah. So yeah. Donald Logue somehow connected him with Ireland or. Yeah. They were very close. Well, that's where Lanigan's roots were. The yep. beautiful the country. I have to say, I've been out to uh, for, for a show that he, he did uh, other voices. It's this great show that I've had artists do in the past. Um, on the label, a beautiful West Coast of Ireland. Like you feel like you're on the edge of the world. So I don't know. Even if he didn't, even if he was not a champion gardener, at least give him a point for for ending up someplace where God's gardening was doing a great job. The thing is, I reading it and calling him out for that. I totally understand it because the advice that we give to people is 
um, advice that we have for ourselves. Yeah. I think he wanted to have his hands in the dirt more, you know, the, um, I, you know, I always give people advice of like, you know, to, or take 10 minutes every day to meditate. I don't fucking meditate, you know, the, yep. doesn't mean it's bad advice. Just, you know, all right, you pick one. I liked, um, this is, this is super basic, but, uh, number eight, look for music off the beaten path. And, and honestly, I, I love it just because, someone that that's as accomplished as him and could just sort of always be the person doing the singing like it was it is pretty obvious from the amount of weird people that he sang with um even if he was only getting exposed to other people's music by people being like hey mark will you sing on my record he was very open to listening to all kinds of wild stuff i'm not going to remember the name but one of the feature tracks was this Portuguese band whose name I can't remember. It was this duo. Um, um, yeah. And uh, like the funny thing is often when he would feature on another artist's work, he would kind of take it over. Like I kind of compared him to like the scene stealing character actor. I think people, someone described him as uh, oh, what's his name? What's the, um, that wild character actor that was in the fat boy slim video. Ah, oh, crap. Um, uh Christopher Walken? Christopher Walken. Like he has like a Christopher Walken element. Like you're like, yeah, you could you could say you want Christopher Walken to do X, Y, and Z, but basically you just want Christopher Walken to like send this energy into this scene. And even though he would often derail other people's music and turn it into his own music, the rest of the record, like he was kind of like, you know, it's like the narrator of old our town kind of element to it. It's like, I want Mark Lanigan like blessing the stage here, basically. Um, yeah. But it was just very clear that he was really chasing after music till the end. And the things that he talked about loving, you know, like, sure, everyone loves New Order, but not everyone loves the gun club. And the love oh, with yeah. which he talked about artists like that, like, and, and very he, admirable. He yeah. Knew, um, he knows or he knew Kid Congo really well. And every time Kid's name came up, he was like, such a cool guy. Like, he, he remained a fan of Kid's and not just a friend. You know, yep. that, you know, that them being friends and knowing each other, it didn't diminish his respect for or admiration of, of Kid. The, um, but yeah, you know, um, Lanigan was going to produce my next record. Yeah, I, I, my heart for you, man. I mean, just that, yeah. yeah. It, you know, and, and that's, uh, you know, a colossal disappointment. But, you know, I, I fight these fights with people online who are like, oh, it's such a shame, you know, about his, his drug addiction. Like, think of what we could have gotten from him. Um, if he wasn't a drug addict and number one, motherfucker, go look at his discography. Yeah, There's enough there. Far. Like there's a lot to uh, work with. And number two, uh, I don't run the, uh, run the numbers on the lifespan of someone injecting drugs intravenously because we are super fucking lucky that he made it to 57. That's the real truth, right? Yeah. He, he, he shouldn't have made it to the 27 club. He should have been dead when he was 24. The, so I, I have a couple, you know, there's a couple of songs where he was like, you do this and you do that and you do this. And if we're doing a record together, you don't get to do either any of those things. Just fuck, just do this thing, you know? And then I sat down and wrote a song and sent it to him. And he was like, see, that's it. I have no notes. That's exactly what I, I what you need to be doing and what I want you to do. I asked you to do it. And 45 minutes later, you deliver a song, you know, the, so the, 
you know, the, the feedback that I got from him was, was so great, you know, the, and, and he really, he didn't care about what your status level was. He, he just cared that you were listening, you know, that you were, if, if music was too important to you, then that's what he cared about. Um, the, one, one of the things that that's on this list that I think is super important was uh, number seven, have a moment for the less fortunate. Yeah. The, um, I've bickered with people about um, the, uh, the situation with homeless people, because I would see people online, like writing, you know, it's like always like the, a clip of them giving 20 bucks to a homeless person or whatever the, or, you know, um, all these viral videos and stuff. And the, and so much of that level of sort of public charity comes from a place of privilege, you know, that if, if you live in the suburbs, um, homelessness is an idea. You're not, um, you're not confronted with it. You know, yeah. the, um, living in Massachusetts um, or living in small town, Massachusetts, um, there was a huge, uh, you know, psychiatric hospital, I think the Hudson hospital that they just closed in the seventies and just sent all those people out into the street. And so you would have very negative experiences with homeless people who are mentally ill, uh, menacing you or menacing your friends. Um, also, you know, my experience of uh, living out of my van for a year is that living out of a van, I was just the next tier up from homeless people. So I would often be, um, catch them trying to break into my van or have, have them break into my van, steal shit for me and stuff like that. You know, I, I was sort of like fighting with them over the same scraps. On the continuum, yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, so my experience of, um, homelessness wasn't like a tidy thing of, um, oh, I'm going to write a check or I'm going to make a donation to this abstract thing, but I'm going to try to maintain empathy for this person who always shits in front of my house or the person who's throwing bottles at me, you know, uh, those kinds of things. The, and, you know, and we talked about this a little bit, you know, being, being sensitive, being an artist and also like being in New York city, like you learn to put that guard up you know, the, if you walk around all day and give five bucks to every person who asks you for money in New York, yeah, you're, fucking, you're rich Yeah, the, um, because there are so many people in need. So you harden yourself to it in, in order to survive. And um, knowing Lanigan and knowing his experience, you know, that he was, he was one of those dudes. He was one of those dark, menacing, homeless dudes all methed out talking to himself he had dreads down to his waist with cigarettes in them he was living in the jungle in seattle he was a bad guy within that bad guy that menace um you know was a great artist and was an inside that was a thinking feeling hoping dreaming suffering human being you know what my fucking hero you know so that that really shook me to my core and 
you know, it changed me sort of immediately and forever. Um, not that I was anti-homeless before, but now every single homeless person I see when I'm out running. So you give them a, the, your, your mind lingers on them as a person rather than as a. I see defense. that yeah. that could be Lanigan in there you know, and, and just, I, I say hi to everybody I come across. We give socks out. I, on my birthday, I'll run out with, you know, a, a stack of tens or twenties and just give, you know, 10 bucks or 20 bucks to everybody I come across. Um, the, because I don't know, Lanigan changed me that way. Made, made me realize, you know, we have no fucking idea who's in, who's in there, you know? Um, I don't know where to, um and we we don't have to do all of these yeah no i mean i was actually thinking of how to do one that will be summary i mean like <laughs> like every day is a new beginning you know like it's like you know i think his ability to take something that's cliche and if you knew the work in any way shape or form realize like how profound that feeling could be because it's like how does when you've seen the shit that he'd seen and you've done the things that he'd done and you'd lost the things that he had lost, he, he's lost, you know, whether it was friends, whether it was how many of his friends were in the 27 club. Um, like the idea to just put one foot in front of the other. And I think in general, like this list, like what I admired about it, if you just ran into it in the abstract, it would not make a great graduation speech. You know, it's not like, you know, the David Foster Wallace, like, I'm a fish and I'm in water, you know, it's like, it's, it's not the metaphor of it. It's the, and the universality of the metaphor. It's like the fact of someone that had such a tough time. And if you knew and loved that work and you ran into this and understood like the hard one, one insights and how they had come, how they had managed to come to a sort of productive place was through these insights in a really practical way rather than in a like showy like I want to I want to song and dance you and impress you with my hard won insights it was literally like this is how you do it you know like if you've been through this shit this is how you wake up and do it every day you know um you you treat it like day one you know and and that's what I like about every day is a new beginning for him for someone that understands what he had gone through um and you know that's even the like the the put your hands in the dirt man like yeah maybe he didn't do it but it's like looking at the world with that perspective is um kind of humbling you know um like that's all that matters at the end of the day um i see people i see higher functioning famous people that i know and it's like wow, man, you're playing 3D chess and you kind of have to wake up every day and play 3D chess, whether it's for fame maintenance or just sanity maintenance of like keeping people away. And like what I loved about this guy making work, about Lanigan making work is it was just very rooted in a day-to-day -day existence or how he would, you know, how you were saying he would talk to you about a song. It's like, just do it. Just like, and not in a Nike way, just in a like, the next thing you should do is fix this and just get yeah. to it. And none of the neurotic, like, you know, throat clearing behavior, just get it done. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, 
when this article dropped, the he and I were not getting along, and I had a lot of resentment to him for you know, so sort of the way that he treated me. So reading a lot of this, I was like, me, you know, man, go fuck yourself. Like, why, why don't I get any of this, Mark? Why do I get all the bullshit? And you know, the but um, you know, I think we can objectively agree as writers, as editors, as students of language that every day is a new beginning is fucking bullshit it's the worst lowest basest form of like inspirational writing however when you put a platitude like that in the throat of somebody who has as much gravitas as Lanigan does you see it again for the first time you know and that's one of the things that that was one of you know that was Lanigan's power as as a singer as a lyricist as a human being um, is that he forced us to see things in a new way. Um, you know, his lyric book is called I Am the Wolf. I Am the Wolf is objectively a dog shit lyric. It's fucking so hack and meaningless unless you're Mark Lanigan and you've been to hell 11 times and come back to tell the story. You know, the, and I think that's the... You know, I think that's one of the things that's like really heartbreaking for me is that, you know, to, as, as a human being who's, you know, gone through hard times and as, um, you know, as an alcoholic and um, as somebody who's been a serial loser for a long time, if you're sitting there flipping the coin and it's like tails, tails, tails. And 300 times you flip the coin and it comes up tails. To have the internal strength, to have the emotional strength to be like, to flip it again and while it's in the air and be like, I hope it comes up heads. Maybe it'll come up heads. And the truth is statistically, the other 300 times don't matter. That each morning when you flip the coin, there's a 50% chance it will come up heads. For Lanigan to have endured everything that he did and to have had it come up tail so many times and for him still to have that unextinguishable or yeah unextinguishable flame of hope in his heart after everything that he'd been through that that's an incredible human triumph you know i hope he um yeah i mean he's one of those people like you know, like Kurt Cobain makes a great like mural on a wall representing Seattle. I'm in Brooklyn, I'm in Clinton Hill Bed-Stuy and there's like Biggie Smalls all over the neighborhood. You know, there's like 20 Biggie Smalls murals and you're like, okay, this is a person that makes a good mural. Like they were both a real person and they were sort of not a cartoon character, but they represented something that looks good as, as that. and I wonder, I feel like the loss of Mark Lanigan is someone that like the fact that he lived and breathed gave him some power because it was so unlikely and i hope people can find their way in to his work and i hope a podcast like this helps i hope that memoir that you helped him pull out of himself helped i hope random ass playlists i post on spotify and write a 500 words find their way in and i you know i think like i hope there's enough people that have the passion to give people their way in because because i think he's someone that there was so much power from having him alive. And I just hope people can find the maps in yeah. to discover him. Yeah.
Because I don't know if he makes as good a cartoon character as some of his peers do. And that's yeah. what's so beautiful about what he did, you know? Yeah. It, it, it is, you know, it's sort of like, bro, did you hear that Paul Bunyan died? Yeah. <laughs> because you're like, wait, was that a real person? You know, I mean, it, it is, you know, his voice and his legend and his story is so mythic that you, you, you know, it, it's, we're less surprised that he died than that he ever lived. Like, I can't believe there ever was a guy like Lanigan, you know, the, um, we should wrap up. I want to give you a chance to like plug all your things, but one of the things I want to tell you Alec is that, um, listening to you, you know, expound at length about Lanigan and what his, uh, you know, music meant to you and means to you and, and sort of thinking about moving forward with it is the, you know, it, it's a very immediate personal reminder of um, the first thing that I liked about you when I met you. And, you know, one of the things that has sort of kept us in touch, albeit horrible touch, but yeah. barely more in the last couple of years or, than in the uh, last decade. Yeah. 20 years is that, um, is that at your core, you are a fan. You love this shit. You, you are, you are deeply enthusiastic about music, about writing, about music writing, about connection, about the way in which, um, you know, we create a piece of art and then it's sort of static, except that then it goes on to live forever and to reach out and touch people and change people. And the, um, and I don't know, man, I, I always admired that about you. I, I, I think that's so important. I think that's so meaningful. And I think it's, I think it's hard with, fucking Brooklyn and the internet and the, the when there's just constant wash of shit coming at you the and you know artists like you know hey listen to my mixtape listen to my mixtape out of this ambiguate what's new versus what actually touches you and yeah I mean I look man I'm very and, and how to stay plugged in how, yeah how to keep caring you know yeah. well you discover a Mark Lanigan and you're like this guy has 20 records I've never heard and you fall in love with it or you discover you know Someone gets you together with parties and you're like, wow, this guy could go really long. Like, this is just the beginning. And it's so cool to be part of that trip. And yeah, man, I mean, I get cynical about it sometimes, but the, but then the art brings you in. Um, I don't have anything really to promote. I mean, I have a label called Brassland. It's B-R-A-S-S-L-A-N-D, like the metal. It's that at all the social media things. So if you care to look... For that, I like what we've put out. Um, I'm Alec Hanley Bemis, which you know you'll spell that based on the podcast title at all the social media things. I don't really use it. I kind of, as I said on say on Twitter, this is a notebook. I'm not trying to engage anyone but myself, really. But like, there's some links to other podcasts if you want to learn more. And I do have this mixtape thing. It's uh, my name dot substack dot com, um, and that's been honestly like I'd. It's been, I think, sometime early in the Spotify era, the streaming era. I, I used to use RDO as a streaming, and then that went out, and I kind of went to Spotify. And just the ability to make playlists and like really keep engaging on the thing itself is very important to me, and it's what keeps me sane. And that that, that Substack, it's not that much about the writing. It's just like this is what I'm doing to engage myself, and if I can share that with you, and you get something you know, a quarter, a 10th of what I get out of it, that's something for the world. So, um, and maybe one day I'll do more things under my own name, but who, who knows and who cares on some level. 
Um, but thank you for appreciating the thing that, yeah, I think keeps me going. Um, yeah. Well, thanks a ton for doing the show, man. And uh, let's uh, let's keep in closer touch. Thank you. Right. Take care. Bye bye. -bye.